Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. Thank you for joining us. Um, tonight I am just thrilled to have back Dr. Dimitri Papalos. He's the author of The Bipolar Child. He's the research director for the Juvenile uh, Bipolar Research Foundation. Alyssa Bronstein, she is the research project manager of the Ketamine Clinical Study. And uh, we have a very special guest joining us tonight, Sydney, who is the mom of a young man. Um, and she's going to come on and she's going to tell us um, you know, what she's seen in her son. So, you know, I, I, I've done a lot of shows on the upcoming changes to the DSM-5, and tonight we will discuss research um, it, that is really part of a new language, that it's really just developing, and it's becoming very clear that kids don't fit bipolar. So why are we staying with, you know, consistency within a system that really has had no breakthroughs, you know, and what is the science really telling us? So there is a new syndrome that sits apart from the DSM, but it's very consistent with um, the National Institute of Mental Health, and it's for kids that it better defines the disorder. And this is my fourth interview, as I said, with Dr. Papalos, and they're going to be bringing you very important information, again, on the fear of harm phenotype. It's very important for parents to know about this. And we're going to be talking about the pilot study that they did and pretty much the outcome. So um, I'd like to first start off with Alyssa. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for having us back on, Marianne. Oh, my pleasure. You know, can you tell us, um, first of all, how the fear of harm phenotype is different from bipolar? You know, what separates yeah. fear of harm yeah. phenotype from bipolar? Well, it's it's a really basic and important thing for people to understand, and I think you did a great job on your introduction setting this up. Um, as many people in your audience know and have struggled with, uh, the DSM disorders just aren't helping people significantly. This is a toolbox. The tools in it have been in there for a long time, and just they just haven't led to any great breakthroughs. Um, the, the classifications that are coming out are really tweaks off of the, within the same toolbox. And we started defining this syndrome, which we've come to call fear of harm, a long time ago and knew right from the beginning that we were going to step away from the old toolbox. Um, the, what, we've ha- what we've done is we left behind the concept that there are clear boundaries between the disorders and that it has to look like this to be a disorder. And so we sort of threw all the rules away and looked at large, large groups of children who would have bipolar disorder in the, you know, in the old nomenclature, the old uh, system of diagnoses, and, and looked at all the symptoms that these kids had. And from in various ways, we were able to determine which symptoms from a multiple from a multitude of diagnoses pulled together into a single unified syndrome. So what's important, you know, and that, this is what we've eventually called the fear of harm. Um, the reason why there is still so much confusion, I know many people in the audience out there, they've heard of this new classification, DMDD, which is Disruptive Mood Disorder with Dysphoria. Um, and this is being proposed as a new corrective classification. And I think that many people will more correctly recognize their children in that classification than in DSM bipolar disorder. The, you know, the problem with that, however, is as you said in your introduction, we're still staying within the old toolbox. 
So to the degree that this new classification, and I know this because I've read all of their research papers, to the degree that it was derived from as a comparison and measured by other DSM disorders, you know, they determined what these children are, what they will become, and what they're not based on accepted concepts from DSM. So we've stepped away from that and said we will not accept any of these concepts to tell us where we should be looking and how we should be labeling these kids. And so that's how we were really able to be liberated to pull together this new profile. Um, What might be confusing to people is that when we first started talking about this research, we described it as a subset of bipolar disorder or a more accurate way to describe these children with bipolar disorder. In our back room, we knew that we weren't actually really, really describing a subset or a more accurate uh, definition of bipolar disorder because we know that bipolar disorder as a concept is not something that's very helpful and it's certainly not validated and it's certainly not proving that it's going to continue being a useful definition. So we knew that we were talking about something new, but we had no language to couch it in. At this point, a lot has happened since then. As you mentioned, the National Institute of Mental Health is stepping away from the DSM disorders. Um, They have started, you know, all of their research that they will fund from this point forward is not based on DSM classifications. And... um, and it, different investigative groups also feel this way. So, right. And, you yeah. know, I, I just wanted to say that, you know, first of all, I, I, I really encourage the listeners to go back. They're posted um, on Facebook. They're posted on Twitter. And listen to the first three interviews that go into really, really detailed interviews um, about this fear of harm phenotype um, so that you can really understand what we're talking about. But um, basically what you're saying is that the fear of harm phenotype really isn't a subset. It's a distinct new neurologically based exactly disorder. Exactly right. Exactly right. And you right. know what? That really fits. And you know what? I think that what's really important for listeners to understand is that we're not just talking about bipolar here. We're talking about kids that may now have the diagnosis of ADHD, depression, anxiety. I'm going to throw in OCD. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think like autism is a spectrum. Parents have been telling me for years their kids do not compartmentalize into Mm -hmm. these categories and this criteria. Their mental illness is a spectrum. And the fear of harm phenotype to me is a, fec- is a spectrum that really, really incorporates what the parents are seeing. Right. Now, so let me, you know, what you're saying is as, it's exactly correct. Um, let me say that, you know, if people can picture this toolbox with the old diagnoses in them, now picture yourself outside the toolbox. So let's say fear of harm is outside of that toolbox. The kids who are receiving diagnoses inside that toolbox for their IEPs and their insurance and everything else, um, you know, so they're swimming in this pool of those diagnoses. Step outside the toolbox, we now have this newly defined syndrome. A syndrome is a group of symptoms that, ex- ex- you know, it includes symptoms from all of those various disorders you talked about. We know that two-thirds of the kids who are swimming in that toolbox have some degree of the fear of harm disorder. It is a, 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 it's a syndrome that is based on a heritable trait one-third of the children in that toolbox who have a a bipolar diagnosis and might get a DMDD diagnosis, one-third of those children 
are not characterized by this disorder of a, a brain pathway. One-third of them have a fair degree of dysregulation in that pathway, and another third of them have a, a high degree of impairment in that pathway. So it is a spectrum. There are kids who are much more ill than others, and, you know, just like, um, oh, right, so there are kids who are much more ill than others, but what we will say is, of all the kids in that toolbox who would get a bipolar disorder, what we have what we have figured out is that this not figured out but this syndrome this fear of harm phenotype does represent the children who are more or the most ill these are the children who have the greatest hospitalizations they have the most out of control mood switches the most terrible sleeping patterns um and their lives are most disrupted so so it is important to start thinking about this in a whole new way this is not inside the toolbox this is a syndrome that is based on a pathway in the brain that affects a very broad range of symptoms. It May I is, say uh, yeah, go ahead. yeah. So um, I think one way of, of describing this is that uh, in, in the general population of parents who, who are seeking treatment in the psychiatric community, um, these are kids who, uh, as Marianne mentioned, uh, um, would would fit criteria in the DSM from maybe four or five uh, different conditions. And so along the way, they usually get diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, with obsessive compulsive disorder, with separation anxiety disorder, with various um, uh, and sundry uh, diagnoses from, from DSM. Now, um, I mean, just to think about if you went into your internist and you presented a profile of symptoms and the internist gave you five different diagnoses, um, I, you probably wouldn't go back to that internist again to get treatment. Um, and essentially that's what has been going on, at least with this group of, of kids, which is a significant uh, number, we estimate over a million in the general population, have this form or a variation of the condition. Um, so uh, it's important uh, also to point out that these are the most treatment-resistant kids. Uh, uh, they have not typically responded to uh, traditional medication, uh, mood stabilizers and atypical neuroleptics. Um, and um, yet, um, when we were able to come up with a unified concept and these very specific six dimensions of, uh, that are about 33 symptoms, these symptoms all came directly from uh, DSM uh, classifications. Uh, we drew together the most common symptoms that we had seen uh, in the children in the community that were diagnosed with bipolar disorder. We drew them from the separate categories, and uh, we added some of our own, and then did a variety of different studies, including studies of heritability and uh, sibling pairs and uh, factor analyses of very, very large samples, and finally came up uh, with these six uh, dimensions that uh, where mania and depression really were secondary uh, symptoms. Uh, right. Although when we looked at these kids, they had 
severe mania and severe depression. However, they weren't the most important symptoms when you actually, uh, when you did, um, you know, a more of a scientific analysis. Right. So, and I just I want think, to say that if, if a parent wants to see what you're talking about with the dimensions of the fear of harm phenotype, they can go to your website, and we'll give them to give that out later. Um, but all of that is listed, and I think parents will really be shocked when they see it. Um, so, so you know, Marianne, what we learned from this though was in, importantly, and this is what brings us to the topic of tonight's show, is that this syndrome, this fear of harm phenotype, has. A very, it's very clear to us, but this is why we're now launching onto this big study. But these children have a dysregulation with how their bodies deal with temperature. They do not regulate their temperature properly. Right. And they Thermal do not sleep properly, right. which is related to body temperature. We also know that, you know, as I said, the most heritable and most salient trait of the illness is this fear of harm. So ketamine, a drug which many people might have heard about lately in the media, uh, is known to lower core body temperature, and it is known to diminish or abolish fear sensitization. So four years ago, Dr. Popolos, you know, armed with this new perspective of a new way of a new syndrome, said, I wonder if ketamine will directly target this syndrome. And for four years, he has conducted a pilot study, which he'll tell you about, and well, you go ahead, <laughs> Dr. Popolos. Well, you know, before you before Dr. Uh-huh. Uh, Dr. Popolos, before you uh, talk about your pilot study, um, I just want to say that um, I actually spoke with um, the lead of the ketamine study in adults with bipolar this mm-hmm. week. Um, I had a meeting with her for other reasons, uh-huh. and um, just incredible. Yeah, um, they just could not be more pleased and are so excited about right. this. And um, you know, and really. You know, let, what, let me just interject something because I'm sure most parents right now are saying, "Oh my goodness, but ketamine." Uh, without going into detail, because that's not what this show is about, we have posted on our website a, f- a, a lot of information about the safety of ketamine. People are afraid of ketamine, but it is an extraordinarily safe drug to use when used in the types of doses that we're talking about. In the about. right setting, yes. Yeah. Sorry, um, you know, either um Either Dr. Poplos or Alyssa, um, before we go into the pilot study and we speak with um, Sydney, um, I just, parents are so frustrated. Why is fear of harm phenotype not being considered for the DSM? DMDD is not a diagnosis anybody is happy with. Yeah. Why, why is it not even being considered? It, 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 it fits best. It makes the most sense. You put, I mean, this yeah, isn't I, something that you're just throwing out there. This I, we don't understand. Yeah, we don't understand either. Um, we brought the research to the attention of the APA. We brought our concerns about DMD to the attention of the APA. Um, we throw up our hands. I mean, they, they basically never called back for another conversation. I know that in their lead-up to, to starting, you know, the whole thing is we've looked at all the research that's been done prior to this point. And our research is out there, but they've never, ever contacted us to find out anything more about it. So I don't know. Why don't don't we move on to to the study? Because, Dr. Popolos, the last um, time you were on, um, you know, we were discussing um, the uh, the use of, um, you used it intranasally, the ketamine. 
And, you know, we, it was very impressive, the results. And as I had said, I had the, the pleasure of meeting a family and a, and a, a young man um, who had, I believe he was in the pilot study. Um, and, you know, I just want you to talk about the pilot study. Um, you know, we, we discussed what led to it. Um, tell us what you found and how it's moved on now to the study that you're now going to be conducting. Well, I think at the time we talked uh we probably had about maybe 20 children and adolescents that we treated. Um, we, you know, and we've been very specific about the choice of uh, of individuals. One, uh, they've had to be ha- have tried a number of different uh, traditional medications and failed, uh, and uh, they had to have this specific subtype of the condition, which we've termed fear of harm. Um, uh, which essentially involves uh, uh, significant fear sensitization and a bunch of symptoms that are related to that and uh, concomitantly uh, aggressive symptoms that are more territorial based on the sense of uh, feeling threatened all the time. Um, and um, and also they had to have this uh, dysregulation of body temperature. And um, basically, um, as, as there, we actually did a, a study that was sponsored by the NINH looking at these children and found what appears to be a biological marker that has to do with uh, body temperature um, regulation with these kids compared, compared to controls. And it appears as if there's some significant problem in dissipating heat from the body. Uh, now, in terms of this study, we now have about 60 cases that we've looked at, not just children, but adults uh, who were misdiagnosed in many different ways and never really treated uh, appropriately, even for bipolar disorder, who continued to have the, the same syndrome into adulthood. So we have a, a wider range and a much larger sample now, and we've we've been able to really, really clearly hone in on the on um, on the thermoregulatory deficit and uh, the effects of ketamine on um, uh, both um, the thermoregulatory problem and also on the fear sensitization. Um, let me let me ask the, you as far as the criteria um, for joining the study because you're enrolling now. So um, I can I know a lot of parents fear if they have even a little bit of stability um, because we're talking about kids that you are not being stabilized on these medications. So would um, a child have to come off their medications? Um, are there any children that would be um, um, restricted from joining the study? Well. And first of all, the ages are 6 to 12, um, so that's a limitation. Uh, but in terms of, uh, of the drugs that they're now on, we will leave them on all of the medications except Lamictal, which uh, interferes at least uh, in one study with uh, ketamine's effect. And also we'll probably take them off melatonin because melatonin has a very uh, potent effect to open up the peripheral vasculature and to cause heat dissipation, and it would uh, obscure uh, our being able to uh, see a difference in that in that uh, measure um, when we gave uh, ketamine. So those are the only two drugs as of now that we would actually uh, that the child would have to be uh, off of. Um, we would um, probably not. 
uh, want to have kids who are on the antidepressants since they are, for the most part, uh, deleterious and uh, uh, encourage uh, rapid cycling, and it would uh, confuse um, the picture. So, um, I mean, most of these kids should probably not be on antidepressants anyway. Um, right. But uh, other than that, um, what we've been doing um and you know, in the pilot study, um, would be has been to uh, stabilize them for several months on ketamine, um, and by stabilizing, I mean pretty much abolish most of the symptoms, right. and then very gradually take them off these other drugs. So, for the most part, uh, we may leave them on a mood stabilizer, but we make every effort to get them off all of the other drugs, and we've been seeing quite a um, an amazing, um, I mean, you get, you, you as a psychiatrist really get a sense of how um, a lot of the negative side effects, for example, the cognitive side effects that you would not ordinarily see until you take the kid, the child, off the, the, the medication. Um, and, uh, you know, medications that they've been on for years. Um, right. uh, so so that in itself is also very satisfying. Um, well, let's uh, also talk about the administration of this. Um, your method of using the ketamine is intranasally. So mm-hmm. how is that, um, if, if, if a parent wanted to um, look into this study, um, would they administer the spray? Would they bring the child to you? How often is it administered? No, um, we have a specific protocol which, um, you know, uh, would be administered by uh, either a nurse or uh, um, a physician's assistant. It would be under my direction and it's under, it would be a specific protocol administered uh, approximately every three days. Uh, The dosages would vary based on the side effects that the child has and also on their response. And uh, the whole study lasts about 18 days, and it's done in-home. That's uh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, the, the study the, the, what, You mentioned side effects. Um, what type of side effects are you seeing? Because I, my understanding is they're really very, very benign, the side effects. Well, you know, the, 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 the side effects that, that we, uh, we have seen in the pilot study, um, of course, we titrate the dose. Um, uh, upwards, and we look at side effects as they start developing. I mean, dizziness is a common side effect, for example, um, uh, probably the most common one. Um, uh, Often there will be, uh, not often, but you'll see some dissociative effects, like their limbs will feel heavy or, uh, um, you know, they may feel sort of out of time uh, for very for a brief period of time. All of the side effects pretty much uh, completely go away after 45 minutes. It's, it's If you can imagine sort of being mildly anesthetized. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they used um, to use that for anesthesia, right? It, it, it's still used around the world. It's still used? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to to make it clear that we're talking about ketamine, and what we're saying here is that in a controlled environment, um, intranasally, um, that, you know, this is how this drug is administered. Um, I wanted to also have you introduce Sydney, and you can tell us, you know, who Sydney is, but is there anything else um, you want to talk about as far as, um, 
you know, I mean, the pilot study obviously was very, very encouraging. Um, so do you, is there anything else you want to talk about um, as far as that, or do you want to bring Sydney on? Well, I just, yeah, um, the, uh, actually we, the paper that describes the first 12 cases and the methodology and the response to the pilot study was just published a few days ago uh, online uh, uh, in the Journal of Affective Disorders, so it's available if people are interested in uh, taking a look at it. Um, um, other than that, why don't we bring Sydney on? Because, shall I uh, introduce Sydney, are you uh, with us? I'm here. Thank uh, you there. so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you just tell uh, um, the listeners a little bit, um, you know, who you are, um, how you became involved with Dr. Papalos and Alyssa, and, um, you know, your experience? Sure. Um, I, my son is now 22 years old, um, and he has pretty much been ill, I have to say, basically his entire life. Um you know, from the time he was a very, very tiny boy, say three, I knew there was something terribly wrong going on, and it took me years and years and years to figure out what it was. The misdiagnoses that both Alyssa and Dr. Popolos were discussing as far as like OCD, ADHD, this, you know, a piece of this, a piece of that, we went through all of that for years. Was He was put on medications that made things worse for him, not better. Um and I finally, um, we finally got in touch with Dr. Papalos when George was 12. So um, he, it took several years to get him, you know, his mood situation, you know, uh, quasi-stabilized. But what never went away was this pervasive anxiety and this misperception of, um interacting with people so that you would have a conversation with him and everything was perceived as an attack on him. And the reaction was hostile so that um, even though his his moods might have been calm to the point where we could keep track of them and knew, you know, when he was escalating into like a more manic mood or in the fall he would get depressed but the but his his life his interactions with other human beings what was virtually impossible for him and his fear was was so overwhelming whether it was at times it was fear about you know one of us his mother his father his siblings or just to venture out into the world everything was terrifying for him. Right. And, and you know, Sydney, I think that's the key, and that's what most parents are missing, and that's what most physicians, psychiatrists are missing, the fear. They, they're not seeing the fear being the core issue behind the behavior. Yeah, well, they're it, seeing the explosive rage or defensiveness after the fear, and that's what I think right. is defined right. as this chronic irritability with explosive rage in DMDD. Right, and exactly. in fact, I mean, if you go through your life always feeling as if you're in danger, <laughs> you know, and, I mean, he couldn't um, necessarily articulate this, you know, but um, the reaction, you know, is like to defend oneself. So it was like always volatile and angry and then terrible guilt because he's really a very kind, sweet 
boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and then other people don't understand what's going on with this person, you know, and why they're talking to him in sort of a calm voice or making a joke, and he can't perceive that. It's a, everything is an attack. And Dr. Popolis was talking about, you know, heat dysregulation. Mm-hmm. My son, um, you know, there were certain cues that you would get for with him when you knew things were going to go awry. And one of the things his entire life has been his ears, which turn a beyond beet-colored red, like you can't, you know, like it's like the ears don't belong attached to the body because the difference in the color is so, right, a lot you know, but, you know let me, it's Importantly, let me insert here, don't forget, you know, what I said earlier is that this is a spectrum disorder. So Sydney's son would be high fear of harm. He has very pronounced you know, uh, expression of this disorder. Um, but you then also, for the parents who are listening, they have to say, well, that's not my kid. My, But, oh, but, yeah, my kid really does react strongly when this enters his space, you know, when these right. enter his needs. When You know, so, so think of this along the spectrum. We're talking about real-life, real brains that aren't on or off. They, right. you know, this, this fear of harm is a spectrum. So, yeah, exactly. I also like to say that, uh, you know, with, with, um, uh, in this case, um, uh, there were other aspects of thermoregulatory deficits, uh, particularly uh, overheating at night that would right. disrupt the sleep cycle mm-hmm. that we treated with initially with uh, fans and with melatonin, which lowers right. the body temperature and which had some effect. Um, and also there is uh, another part to this, which is this uh, moderate to severe cold tolerance uh, where it's common that, you know, parents are running after their kids with a, you know, trying to put a coat on them in the winter and they're walking around with shorts on. Um, and that's uh, another feature of clinical uh, feature of this uh, temperature dysregulation. So I wanted to go that. And I believe right. that, that was true also for your son, right? Yes. I mean, absolutely. As a matter of fact, after he began treatment with the ketamine, at some point after, you know, uh, he was telling me he was cold, which is something he never, ever, ever told me. And I'm like, well, put on something warmer. You know, put on a, you're wearing a short sleeve shirt. Put on something warmer. And he's like, Mom, I don't have any long sleeve shirts. I don't and I was like, Oh I didn't even realize this poor child had no long sleeve shirts because he was never you know never cold. Never cold. And they're always sweating at night and they wake up with their sheets wet. I mean it's very, very common, you know, and there's no one size fits all. So, you know, in the case of your son, although he fits into the fear of harm uh, phenotype, another child that doesn't have these exact presentations still may be part of the fear of harm phenotype, which is why I really am just begging you to go to the website and look at it because red flags are going to go up all over. But um, I would assume that you dealt with rages with your son. Oh, tremendous. Um, I would assume that there was a fear of residential. um, You know, these are very severe, very sick children. Um, so how did you um, get introduced to the ketamine, and can you just tell us, um, you know, how it evolved, what you saw, how soon you saw it, and, you know, h- how he's progressing now? Sure. Um, well, you know, he was already a patient of Dr. Popolos's, and, you know, there were certain aspects of 
you know, the disorder that just were not, as I would describe, not getting any better so that, you know, um, in order to have a life, you have to be able to step out into into the world. And he really, you know, wasn't able to do that even though, and he also didn't have any sense of himself um, when things were getting worse for him until he was kind of in a crisis, which, you know, he couldn't, there was no self-monitoring for himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when Dr. Popolos first suggested trying the ketamine, um, my son was absolutely terrified uh, to try it, which actually isn't shocking considering he was, you know, f- afraid of everything. But yeah. he was he was absolutely terrified, and, and, it, and it took some convincing for him, big con- time convincing, to get him to be willing. For me, um, you know, I, you know, obviously read all the materials and discussed it with Dr. Papalos, but I knew that, you know, any, you know, this boy wasn't going to have a life, so I needed to... It's a quality to, of life issue. Right. It really is. So, so it was not, you know, that was not a difficult decision for me. And for for parents out there whose children are medicated on various different things, many of the medications he had been taking for years, you know, typically, you know, you weren't originally designed for what he was taking them for anyway because so every so it wasn't a problem for me to have him start the ketamine. It offered a bright hope. And and how old was he when he started it and what did you um what did you say? He was 20 when he started. He um he's 22 now. He what I saw the first time was first off he had an overwhelming sense of calm which he had never ever experienced ever in his life. So it was very dramatic because it was like to see well, him it was unbelievably dramatic. He also was a little giddy and a little bit euphoric, and he did have sort of like heavy arms and um, a lightheaded sort of feeling briefly. But but the main thing was this incredible internal peace and calm that he had never experienced before. Um, the first night that he had his administration was the first night ever that my family sat around a dinner table and had a meal without one of my children having to leave the table because but, of the but volatility. Spacey and like like some of these drugs do. He was he was what we would call normally interactive, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, he was a little laughing a little bit at first. You know, kind of felt a little bit of eu- euphoric type feeling, I guess, but mm-hmm. very short lived. Um, you know, just lasting a few minutes, you know, his arms felt heavy. Um, But by the time that you were home and having dinner in the next several days, I I don't want parents to feel like, oh, this is a drug that just puts kids on a space land where they're sort of like la, 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 la. No, not at all. No, from my understanding, Sydney, and, you know, um, I want to make sure we get all of this in. You know, my understanding um, from the people I spoke to, because um, I do my homework. Um, from the people that I spoke to, um, they didn't have any of, of that. What what they said was exactly what um, Dr. Papalo said, that, you know, with the first maybe 20 minutes or so, um, there was a, a bad taste or there was a little bit of dizziness. But basically what parents have, have told me and adults have told me was that what you're saying is that there's a foreign calm 
and that actually that calm, it takes time to adjust to actually feeling the normalcy of calm. Well, um, but how did it affect him as far as um, going to school and, um, you know, is he still taking it? And, you know, what, really what were your observations as far as how it changed his functioning? It's changed his functioning dramatically. It's been literally nothing short of miraculous for him. Um, he, you know, can now venture out into the world and do things that he would never, ever, ever have been able to do before. He, um, for example, you mentioned school. He is um, going to be going to film school starting in the next couple of weeks in Manhattan. He would. He was terrified to get on a subway, to deal with public transportation, to ask anyone for assistance. It was all completely overwhelming for him to the point where, like, he couldn't even, he'd be so frightened he couldn't even see where the uptown versus downtown, you know, station was. Right. But now um, those fears have dissipated. He's he's able to venture out and, and have social situations, and he's attempting now to go to school. Um, he is more, his mind has opened up in, in a self-reflective way that's something he could never, ever do before so that when he, when he sees, when he has an interaction with like a sibling or someone that's difficult, he can look back and say, you know, wow, I, I, I overreacted there. I realized I overreacted there because my That's sister huge. said it's unbelievable. I mean, That's because huge. in the past, in the right. past it was like Teflon. No matter what was going on, it was always externally somebody else's fault. He could right. never well, because of how he saw say. the That's world. It. That's what they, what they basically people see bipolar is just this defiant child that you can't use the word no, and um, nobody looks at the fear. But um, you know, Sydney, I just wanted to, um, you know, first of all, I just want to say I'm just so happy for you. I mean, oh, it, it, I, I just, thank you. I, I am, thank I am you. just genuinely from my heart, I'm so happy for you. And um, you know, I, I wanted to um, to move on to the study because you are not the only one who's being helped by this. Um, and I'm just I'm so grateful that you came on um, because it's important that parents hear from another parent. Like I always say, we're each other's best resource. Um, but um, Dr. Papalos, how many children have you given this to? And you know, roughly or specifically, um, how many have improved? Well, we we treated 60 individuals. I mean, you say children. Uh, you know, we've treated uh, mostly most of these are children who would be. Uh, you know, anywhere from the age of five to um, 15, and then there have been a number of uh, adolescents, and there have been a number uh, of adults. Um, the total, uh, uh, Anne is about 60 now. Um, the only, uh, I would say, two or three um, individuals that did not respond uh, um with you know with dramatic uh, uh results were mm-hmm. those that we were not able to give enough ketamine to um in this f- form to change the thermoregulatory problem <clears throat> that is to say they continue mm-hmm. to overheat they continue to overheat at night um they continue to um have this cold tolerance and uh 
Um, you know, in, in, in those cases, we just think they weren't absorbing the ketamine, you know, because uh, they were getting rather high doses. So, um, you know, other than that, I would say the response weight is somewhere around 98%. Um, right. And that the semi-regulatory change, we can say, at least clinically, is um, the marker for response in these children. Once that's the that same. Occurs, that's the same number. Ninety-eight percent was the same thing that was seen in the adults. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know, it, from my understanding, is that this is really the direction that treatment is going to go. And you know, I, I, I'm so grateful that you found it, and I just want people to understand that. You know, people have fears. Parents have fears. You know, we have a lot of anxiety about trying anything. Um, But this is something that you've been doing for a while. This isn't new. And, you know, parents really need to reevaluate if their child is diagnosed with bipolar, ADHD, or whatever it may be, and they are not being helped. They really need to look into the fear of You know, interestingly, um, Marianne, the ketamine is well known to be neuroprotective. It protects the brain mm-hmm. cells. It, it helps right. them to grow. Um, ketamine, given in extraordinarily high doses to either to um, comparable to a fetus, a human fetus, um, or a newborn, um, will cause... Uh, damage and even destruction of brain cells. But it is a very clear period of time at which that type of neural growth stops. And even if we were talking about that type of neural growth, we're talking about doses that are in excess of 500 to 1,000 times what we're giving. So at high doses, ketamine is known to be neurodegenerative. But in low doses even doses that are significantly higher than what we are doing, it is known to be neuroprotective. So considering that these disorders, these diseases, are known to damage brain cells, when you are under chronic depression, chronic, you know, any of these illnesses, your brain cells atrophy. I know that I'm going out on a limb here, but the case could be made that not getting treatment is more risky than than getting a small dose of ketamine. Um, so and, you know, know Alyssa, we only have we only have a minute left, mm-hmm. so I just wanted to wrap this up. Um, <coughs> excuse me, but you know, I think that also what's important is that um, the ketamine isn't going to be for everyone, and the ketamine is going to be for a lot of children. But the beauty of this in in your study is that. Um, you know, you do have criteria. <clears throat> this isn't going to, you know, it, it's a very controlled environment. So um, if you'd like to, please tell us where parents can find out yeah. more about it. They can enlist to see if they would be, a child would qualify yeah. for it. Now, we're not trying to encourage anybody to do the study. Um, studies are done all the time. This is a very tightly regulated, controlled study. We have approval from FDA. Um, We are doing a study, and we need 60 children to be subjects in that study. And when the study is done, if we find that ketamine does safely and effectively treat the symptoms of this syndrome, then we will be able to publish those reports, and people can use that information as they see fit. I mean, professionals can use that information as they see fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, where can, where, know, we only have we a few like seconds left. Okay. So, where? so on our website, jbrf.org, 
um, you can go to the ketamine clinical study section, which is found on the right-hand margin of the of the homepage, and in that section you will find everything about the study. But if you click on the information center, there will be a link to the application. Okay. Well. Oh, and the one I, thing that was not said is this is limited to the Met, New York metropolitan tri-state area. Since it is in the child's home, we have to reach them. We cannot go to right. Arizona, but we hope as soon as this is done that the people in Arizona will be able to access the information. Well, you know, I thank you very much for coming on. I mean, listen, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a doctor. Um, I'm an advocate, and um, really, I mean, this it's it's. Parents are faced with, I mean, it's just so devastating to have such a mentally ill child. And if I can bring them options that, you know, I feel um, really could could save their lives, um, you know, that's what I do. And um, I just just really believe in what you're doing. I I hope that, um, you know, you continue success with the study. And, you know, I hope that you um, find the answers parents are looking for. Yeah, Yeah, I really really hope you find help. Um, well, Dr. Papalos, thank you as always. Thank you. Alyssa, we'll be speaking. <laughs> yes, and absolutely. Sydney, I am just so happy for you. Thank you so much. Thank you You're for welcome. having me on and for, you know, just you know, putting this out there for people to learn about. It's so important. Well, yeah, it's so important. Um, so, folks, go to what is the website again? www.jbrf, as in Juvenile Bipolar Research Foundation, .org. Okay. And um, I just wanted to announce a couple of upcoming shows. Um, We have Dr. Lynn Kenny, who's going to be coming on, and the show is Expectations. Who are they for? It's about setting goals, um, expectations that you have for your children, outside influences. It's a great show on the landscape that parents need to build to help their child. Another show coming up is uh, Stephanie Weiss. As Stephanie will be discussing when worry isn't just worry, uh, child anxiety disorders, when you need to get help. Um, we also have a really interesting show coming up, and I think everyone here is going to be able to relate to it. Um, it's a topic hidden due to embarrassment, fear, and shame. It's physical abuse of parents by kids and teens with autism and mental illness. You're going to meet a mom who's in the thick of this right now, and she's coming out asking for answers. She loves her son. She wants her son to be home but it's getting to the point that she can't keep him. And we're going to be having Dr. Carol Lieberman on, and we're going to be discussing what parents can do when they have a physically violent child. Also, Mayor Johnson is coming back on for our Christmas special. They are the super center for assistive technology, and they're going to be coming on with the latest technology they have for special needs kids. So thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week.